Um, and so actually that was like right at the beginning of the church. And uh, it's just such an awesome book. So let's read the... We won't read the whole chapter. We're going to go through the whole chapter. But let me read at least the first... Um, about the first 13 verses so we get it in our minds. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin covers. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day when the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who gave you gave to be with me she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. When we started the book of Genesis, one of the things I told you is that in the book of Genesis, we find an incredible amount of the doctrines of the Bible. And this morning as we come to Genesis 3, we come, of course, to one of the major doctrines of the Bible. Um, really, when we talk about doctrine, it's truth, um, you can't really say that um, you can't dismiss the doctrines of the Bible. And today we're looking at the fall of man. Um, you may, some people may not like the fact that man has fallen and sinful, but it's definitely something you can't take out of the Bible. Um, it's just there. And it make it really without it, um, you would have to explain things. You know, we started the book of Genesis in Genesis one and two and, and, uh, we saw that God had created an incredible creation, didn't we? Multiple times he said it was good. Uh, we even talked about maybe for the first time, it was for me the first time where I really was able to just think about what the Garden of Eden must have been like. You know, um, I love to garden. I love my yard. I love to take care of it along with my wife. It's something we enjoy doing. And it just intrigued me to think about, wow, what was this garden like? You know, obviously it was the Garden of Gardens. You realize that. I mean, sin had not entered the world yet. Uh, God had made it. It was amazing. Well, then next week when we get into chapter 4 and 5, you're going to see the... Remember, Genesis is the book of beginnings, a lot of firsts. You're going to see the first murder in the world. And so you go from this incredible beginning of 1 and 2 to this horrible murder in 4. And if you did not understand chapter 3, you'd have to wonder what happened. What what happened? How could it go from here to here? And of course, chapter 3 answers that question because it's the fall of man or as we know that the event that marks sin entering into the world. Um, and so it's important we under we understand that and, and we're going to see that this morning. So it's going to be about the fall, but it's also a 
great chapter, as you know, and I think most of the time we go to this chapter for this reason, that deals with sin and deals with the temptation and falling to sin. So it's really kind of a twofold thing. You're going to be able to get an understanding, and if you don't have that, I ask you to really key in on it, about what it means that man has fallen, the depravity of man. And this is the chapter that where it began and where it comes from. But on the other side, then, very practically, it is a chapter that speaks about being tempted and how sometimes we yield those temptations. But also, as you'll see, we can glean from seeing how it happens and realize by understanding that it helps us then to learn how not for it to happen. So let's just work our way through it. You come to verse 1, and it's the first temptation. The, temp- the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So the devil's first, first tries to get the woman, this is the first temptation, to doubt what God had said. And so you could say the first temptation was a doubting of the word of God. Okay, And notice he says there, Indeed, has God said. He raises a question in Eve's mind, if you will. Is that really what God said? Is that what you really heard, Eve? And so he seeks to really plant that seed of doubt that she would then start questioning God. That's the beginning of any disobedience is when we start questioning things. The devil then does this because he is a bright creature, if you think about it. Um, we know from Isaiah fourteen twelve. you can look at it later. And then also I think it's Ezekiel 28, where we learn that Satan was an angel um, and him along with one third of the angels then were cast from heaven became what we know today as what we call the demonic or the demons fallen angels and so he was once with God in heaven he desired to exhort or place himself above God and of course that was his downfall and why he was cast out of heaven and so he isn't a a stupid creature if you will we see it in the word when it says that he was more crafty than all the beasts the word there means Crafty means subtle or shrewd, sly or sensible. In other words, he was able, he is able still to formulate a plan and to carry out that plan. So, and I think you'll get a sense of that by the time the morning's over that um, he's very much doing that to this day. Uh, He works a plan to try to get mankind um, to fall. And so that's what we see here. He is called the serpent. And if you think of a, a snake, that's what the idea is here. You then get an idea that a snake is a creature that is subtle. It's, it's, um, it's, it's shrewd, if you will. You know, they are very clever in how they catch their prey. By the time a snake has its prey in its fangs, it's too late for the prey. It, the, usually the prey learns of the snake's presence when he finds himself in the jaw of the snake. And so it's a picture, really, of what the enemy or the devil is like. And in the New Testament, we see that, don't we? We see the demonic. We see the demonic will possess people. We see the demonic will even possess animals when we think of the herd of swine that were possessed in the New Testament. And so it isn't our done then understand that Satan here, a fallen angel, possesses either this serpent or takes on the form of a serpent when he comes to the woman as he did and tempts her like he does. So he tempts her, but then Eve responds in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent... From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it 
or you will die. And so her response is, no, we can't eat from the tree, the trees of the uh, of the garden. And God had told Adam in chapter 2, verse 16, that they could eat from the tree except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so the woman was correct in saying, no, we can't eat, we can eat from the trees, but not of the one tree. Um, where she was wrong is she kind of seemed to leave out the fact or even added to scriptures when it says he said don't touch and, and that. But really you could say in a way that Eve at this point responded biblically. She corrected Satan and said, no, God has said we can eat from those trees, not, just not the one. Well, then he comes again and he tempts her in verse 4. A second time the serpent said to the woman. So he says, if that's your reply, you surely will not die. And so he gets a little bit more specific now, if you will. He hones in the temptation and says, you won't die. And while that might not seem like much to you and I on the surface, not a big deal. Understand it was bold. He was saying, in effect, that what God said would happen. God had said, the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. The enemy comes and says, will you really die? And so what he does there, he really is calling God a liar. He's saying, what God has said to you isn't going to really happen, so go ahead and take of it. And so he goes from saying, has God said, to now saying, you won't die. Come on, give me a break. In other words, God's probably keeping something from you. And that's when he tempts her this third time in verse 5 for it says, For God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And, and what the devil is doing is getting the woman to doubt the goodness of God there. Turning the truth around and, and confusing things. And understand this, you guys. The word tells us God is not the author of confusion. When you find confusion in your life, when you're dealing with a situation and there is confusion... The good chance is Satan's in the middle of it trying to stir things up because that is not our God. He is not the God of confusion, but that's exactly what he does here. And he starts to twist things and, and confuse Eve and get her to think in a confusing way and draw the wrong conclusions. And so he tells her, surely you won't die. And that's again how it works. And so he tempts her then this third time uh, by you know saying, is that really going to happen? And, he, and to question the goodness of God. But the truth was, God wasn't keeping them from good. When God said, don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't that he was, uh, he was protecting them from evil. And in that, they really had the goodness of God for them. Because we know the minute they ate, that they would know good and evil like they had never known before. Especially evil as now sin would enter in their lives. And that's the perspective they would have. And we can relate to that. You and I view good, but we view it from the perspective of knowing evil. And up to this point, Adam and Eve did not do that. But once they ate, that is then how they would view good and how they would actually know evil because it would be in their own heart. And note this, because this is one of the ways that Satan gets man to fall, to doubt the goodness of God. You know, saying to us, when God says don't, when God says obey my commandments... You know, is he really trying to keep us from experiencing something? From taking of something that's good? And, and thus, we're missing out. What's he doing? And so often we think that. But the truth is, the motivation behind God's commandments is good. And we're not missing a thing when we obey God. Matter of fact, we are we, so much more we partake of when we, we obey God. The blessings are so much more. He keeps us from harm. And yet, how many times do we think, I have to taste that thing? 
I have to touch that thing. I have to experience that thing to know for myself. And it's sad. It's sad. It's the frustration of every parent, isn't it? That for some reason our kids have to go, as they say, sow their own wild oats. But you know what? That's not biblical. And they don't really have to do that. And I wish you know kids didn't do that and they would learn that. And many of us did it and we know that it's too bad we had to do that. Well then, and so he starts with this, just a simple suggestion. You know, is that what God said? Then he questions God's word. He gets a little bit more direct, more specific, you know, draws him in a bit more. And then finally, all the way getting you to not only question God, but to doubt him, thinking maybe he doesn't want your best interests in mind. And then that leads to the sin. Verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And so, unlike the first time, if you could say the first time she did at least use a portion of the Word of God in Satan's temptation, here you don't see that, do you? You don't see her, again, quoting what God had said and rebuking the enemy. See, she's using another means now, you guys. It's important to understand that. When she should have been using the Word of God, she now is drawing upon another way to try to deal with the enemy. Sounds familiar? We've all done it, haven't we? How often we do this, listening to ourselves is one way. We think sometimes, well, I know what I should do in this situation. Really? As if our wisdom is sufficient. I mean, come on, think about it. You know, any wisdom we have that is on target is because the Holy Spirit is working such a way in our life that it's to God's glory that it's there. But other than that, forget it. Our wisdom isn't there and our wisdom isn't going to cut it, you know. And so sometimes that's what we do rather than consult the word. Other times we go to other people and we want, what, what do you think, you know. I know sometimes when we do that, we have to understand this about that. And you guys think for a minute. Other people aren't a guarantee that you're going to get the right counsel. Now, the Bible tells us there is wisdom in seeking the counsel of many. It's a proverb. And, and so I'm not saying we should never seek the counsel of others. But other times, sometimes we seek the counsel of those who we know are going to side with us and agree with us when really they're not going to be telling us the truth. And I even see people that seem to be good friends do that. You know, friendship, it's, it's rare and far in between the friendship that can go so far that can be totally honest with each other and keep their friendship. My brother Russ comes to church. He was in first service and several years ago, my brother went through a divorce and it was just a real hard time on him. And... Up to that point in my life, there was always that brotherly junk going on, you know. He was a jock, I was a druggie, and, you know, you just carry all that junk into adulthood and, you know, brother rivalry and all that stuff. And finally, when his life was falling apart and he would call me, I had never been uh, as honest and almost, you could say, brutally honest with him uh, for several years uh, as he was going through things. My, my wife at times, when I'd hang up the phone, she would hear one side of the conversation. She couldn't believe that I said what I said. But what I was doing was trying to make him see things, to see the truth, see what he didn't necessarily want to see, but what he had to see. And, and so it, and it's amazing to this day, and guys don't have to say this. We don't go up to each other, hey, we've got a great friendship now. No, we just know we do, okay? And our friendship has never been like it is today, you know? 
when my brother sees me going through something now, I pretty well can count on a phone call and this and that just to see how you're doing. And it's nice, you know. And so, again, but sometimes understand that that doesn't always happen in that. So we can sometimes be seeking ourselves or seeking others um, when we aren't seeking the Word of God. And, and again, we can consult, you know, sources, professionals, experts. But when the one we should have gone to is God and His Word, and we haven't done that. And we need to come to understand that God's Word really can shed light on everything that you and I go through. I'm not saying there isn't insight in other places, but truth belongs to God. And His Word does and can shed light. The only problem is you and I getting to that point. You see? And I know sometimes we think, well, you know, Scott, I don't know the Word that much. I don't know where to find. Well, welcome to the party. You know? I've known the Lord since 1972. And I'm still just like sometimes feel like, man, I've just scratched the surface on understanding what's in here. So you're not alone. We're all in that same place. But it still doesn't mean we shouldn't be going to it. And, and, and even then seeking out others that could help us. You know, what does the Word have to say on this? So again, it's a good thing to understand. Notice also, the devil is successful in getting the woman to focus on this one thing, the forbidden tree. Watch this. When there was so much else in that garden that she could have focused on, there were other trees that filled the garden. How many, I don't know. Okay, But we could probably say there were maybe a hundred we could maybe say there was more. Maybe this garden was a lot bigger than we think. Maybe there are hundreds or even thousands. But there were more than just a few trees. And, and understand that about Satan. That is how he likes to get to us. He, he, he causes us to dwell on that one thing when there is so much else we could be thinking about and focusing on and doing. And, 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 and so that's what we have to understand. We have so much freedom in Christ. We have liberty in Christ. The truth has set us free, but the devil gets us to obsess at times on that one thing. I'm taking a group of guys on Thursday night through this whole era of pornography. Okay? And we don't need to act like, wow, you know? It's there. It's, it's this part of this world nowadays. And that's exactly what happens at least to a guy in that whole area. You know, the enemy loves to get you to obsess on images or in that area of sexual perversion, if you will. And the next thing you know, you fall. And so it, it's just, it's so true as we look at this and we realize that's what he did to her. And notice the devil caught Eve alone. Not only is she focused on that, which she really didn't need to focus on, the one tree, when there was so much more in the garden, but then he got her to be alone. And if you think it was by chance, you need to think again. He is a serpent. He is wise. And I think the minute he got cast out of heaven, he saw what God had done. He says, fine. And he said, I'll go after your creation then. And he waited for that moment. He knew, I'll get her alone. He gets her alone, you know, and, and he isolates her. And so often he loves to get us alone, to isolate us, to isolate us with our own thoughts and our imaginations. Amen? Right? Have your thoughts ever gone away they shouldn't go? Or your imagination go they shouldn't go? Either into fantasy or the other way, you know, what somebody might think about you when it's not even the truth? You know when the Bible says, take your thoughts captive to Christ? You understand one of the things that means? Here's what it means. Understand this. Take what you're thinking and see if you can back it up with the Word of God. If you can't, then quit thinking that way. That's what it means there. You know, let Christ control your thinking and take those thoughts that you're thinking, oh, this is the truth or this is that, and weigh it against the Word. And when you see that it doesn't match, then understand, quit thinking that way. 
let Christ control your thinking in that way. And so he loves to do that. He loves to, you know, isolate us. That's why God's word makes it so clear that we are to be in fellowship. It is the enemy's work today that has done what he has done in our society and in the world of driving the wedge in families. Families are deteriorating. Even the families that are together, so many of them are a mess. They are. There's not good order. There's not good things going on in families today. And we are becoming a culture of isolation, aren't we? That's why you you ever wondered why everybody's so uptight? Because everybody's alone. Everybody can get real self-centered and they just are thinking about themselves. And that's not being a family. And you and I as a church need to understand that we are exhorted in Scripture to make sure we are connected with one another. You know, we are to be a family. We're to be connected. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, I always say Paul, but there's those of you that think differently and you're wrong, but it's okay. Uh, (laughs) Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so God knew that we would need each other. You know, that's an incredible passage. You know those verses. But what the writer says here is, let's consider how to stimulate one another. To what? To love and good deeds. And that hit me fresh this morning. As I was going over my notes, I thought, that is really interesting, Lord. What you're saying there is part of my day, part of my week, part of my month is to be a process where I'm spending time thinking, how can I stimulate other members in the body to love you, to love others, and to do good deeds? And you might be thinking, I haven't thought that way for a while, Scott. That's what I was thinking, you know. Now, I think I do just because of my role as a pastor. My role is constantly to try to exhort you to love and good deeds. But you understand that? And maybe some of you thought, you know, I never thought about that. I mean, it's a little convicting, but maybe it says on a Sunday morning, I'm coming to church on a Sunday. I want to worship God. I want to hear from God. But God, am I to stimulate others to love and good deeds today? And the answer is, of course, yes. See, don't forsake the assembling. And what does he say there? Some are in the habit of doing. Oh, Lord, did you have to put habit in there? And he said, yes, I did, because that has become a habit to too many people. But encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Is there a greater day that we need to be encouraged than this day that we live in? No. We need the encouragement of each other today. When Jesus sent his disciples out, answer me this. How did he send them out? Two by two. Because he understood it is harder to get two to fall than to get one to fall. See, Isn't it interesting how God takes care of these things? You know, and so we need to be in fellowship with each other. We need not to be isolated like this, you know. And again, understand, isn't that the temptation? When you're going through something, when you've been hurt, when you're in a trial, even when you have entered into sin, your inclination is what? Stay away from church. Stay away from the body. Stay away from other people. And you know that's the last thing you should be doing. You should be running to church, running to the body, running to your Christian brothers or sisters for the help that you need because of what happened. Because you're alone. So anyway, enough of that. It's getting way too convicting. (laughs) And notice where the devil catches Eve. He catches her by the tree that they were not to eat from. She was with an eyesight. It was staring her in the face. I wondered if she could smell something from the tree. And you guys think about this, if you will. A good question is, why was she there? 
I get the impression this was a good-sized garden. There was a lot of other things to do, man. And where she camped out, she's camped out right by that tree, just looking at that tree, you know? It's like, man, we shouldn't do that. No wonder she fell. Can anybody resist temptation when you park right next to it? The answer is no, you know? Get out of there, man. It says we need to set up our homes, our workplaces, as much as we can in that case, our activities, our entertainment, to be safe from temptation. Parents, set your homes up as safe places, as godly places. Don't lead your kids. Don't let your kids be led into temptation within the home. Adults, don't have your home set up that way. Don't allow your entertainment and things like that to be things that will tempt you and lead you into that place. You know? There's a whole lot else out there. Stay away from the tree that will lead you into that way. You know? And Eve, the opportunity to sin and being the temptation to sin, we're residing together and we don't want to let that happen. We might be able, not be able to prevent being tempted. And by the way, temp, being tempted is not sin. You understand that. But we can prevent the opportunity. We can make a choice that says, I'm not staying there. I can't stop him from tempting me, but I don't have to sit there while he does it. And so Eve dealt with temptation in these three ways. She ignored God's word. She knew she should have listened. It was effective. Her decision to take of the fruit was based on her flesh. What was more desirable? It was pleasant, it says, to her eyes when the Word of God should have been that thing. That's a dangerous place to be. And then three, she convinced herself she knew best that she had the wisdom needed to make the decision. And the truth is she didn't. You know, years ago when I was in high school, I remember for me... I started to get involved in drugs in the junior, my junior summer. I was one of those, uh, I, I had kind of been a jock. I never was really good in sports. And I kind of shifted my junior summer and started hanging out with what we called the dopers at school. And I can remember a girl coming to me that knew me and saw what I was doing. And she said, you know, Scott, I can remember, I know her name. I could tell you it if I wanted to. And she said, Scott, don't hang out with those guys. You're going to do what they do. And I said, I will never put a needle in my arm. And within six months, I was putting needles in my arms and shooting up heroin. See? And so we have to understand that um, we've got to be careful. We don't always have the wisdom we think we have to make the right decision. And when we ignore the Word of God, we we listen to our own flesh and we listen to our own instincts, Every time it's going to lead us to thinking we know best when we don't. And again, I don't know how many times I've counseled people in the body of Christ and I could just tell they don't like what I'm saying and they're not going to do what I'm saying and they go out and they sin and they get trapped into what the enemy wants to do. You know, Satan's effective in the ways he gets man to fall. You think of the story of Joshua. You think of Achan. Remember Achan in Joshua 7? Achan, it says, what did he do? He saw the spoils. Then he, after seeing it, he started to covet the spoils. And the next step was he took of the spoils. And what happened? It cost him his life. It cost Adam and Eve life right here as well. See the pattern? Same thing happened with David, the king of Israel. 2 Samuel 11, as he looked at Bathsheba, and you think he didn't, I think he looked, and I think it was probably something going on for quite a while. And then finally he justified it somehow and he had her brought to him. And of course you know the story that he he saw her, he coveted her, he took of her and uh, 
and death came as well in that situation. See, the enemy always does that. It's it's what Second John, First John two sixteen talks about: the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It, it sounds like, well, why don't we know this then? If this is how he does it, <laughs> well, why don't we know this? You know, but he constantly gets man to fall the same way every single time. And so she took of the fruit, verse six, did that which God said don't do, and having done so, gave it to Adam. And, and again, she's not being much of a helpmate here, is she? And watch this. With that bite, sin entered into the world. Man had fallen. Right there. That's when it happened. When Adam bit of that apple. And with that bite, it entered in. He fell. And, it, and it's what we see today when we look around us. We look at our world today. It's a fallen world. We look at our own hearts. Our hearts are fallen. We are fallen people. We are depraved people. The, we have inclination always towards sin. Now, I'm not saying that's all you think about. Any inclination, inclination that isn't towards sin is because you've given your life to Christ and the Holy Spirit is working in your life to make you have godly inclinations. But you know as well as I do that as sure as there's a side in me that is righteousness because of Christ's righteousness, there's a side in me that has evil inclinations towards sin. And that's what we see here. The whole thing we're talking about, Paul lays out in Romans 5, the fall of man. The doctrine of the fall of man. Verse 12 there he says, Therefore, just as through the one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. See, sin came through Adam. You know, that is, we are Adam's descendants, and that's why we have all, we have all sinned, and we are all sinners. We are all fallen in nature. And so this is where it happened when Adam ate of the fruit. He represented the entire human race. Now I want to show you something here that I understood, but I understood it even clearer this week after I got done studying, is that you need to see the difference between what Eve did and what Adam did. It's easy to think, well, they both ate. Why didn't it come through Eve? And you need to understand there's a difference here. Eve was deceived, okay? If you look in your Bibles at verse 13, when God asked her, what have you done? She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And she's right on there. That's exactly what happened. And we know Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.14, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So Eve's mistake is she was deceived by the enemy. But Adam, you guys understand, was disobedient. It was to Adam that God had said back in chapter 2 at verse 16, before Eve was even formed, right? He said you can eat freely to Adam of any tree in the garden, but verse 17, but not from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So it was up to Adam to pass that knowledge down to Eve. She, he didn't say that to... God did not say that to Eve. God said that to Adam. And so when Adam ate the fruit, Eve ate because the serpent deceived her into eating, tricked her into eating. When Adam ate, you have to understand, it was in direct disobedience to God's command that he knew that he heard. And he chose at that moment to disobey God. He chose to be rebellious. And that's why he fell. And that's why sin entered in the world. Because we all come from Adam. And so understand that difference there. And now I think you do. Well, the consequences, verse 7, their eyes were open. Their eyes were both open. The, both of them, the eyes of both of them were open. And they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin covering. And so they knew now what? Okay. And you see this because of the fig leaf. If, if, if the fig leaf shows us there was shame and there was guilt. If they didn't put a fig leaf there, they would, you could say that they didn't feel anything. But the minute they ate, they realized they were naked. They felt shame. They felt guilt. 
What did they do? They put the fig leaf over him. John Davis, who writes about Genesis, he's a great writer. He says, the tempter promised that eating the fruit would open Adam and Eve's eyes, but he did not say that they, what they would see. They saw themselves as sinners devoid of their original beauty, and they saw good and evil only from the standpoint of sinners from the rock-bottom level of corruption. And boy, how he deceived them, huh? How he had tricked Eve to think, you know, your eyes will be open, but he didn't say how they will be open. Think of the last time you were in sin and you were at the bottom of it and you were feeling its pain and you were feeling the shame of it and you were looking up from that perspective. That's what happened here. Second, what did they do? The consequences, they hid themselves. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's probably the evening as the day is cooling down. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so there was now separation from God. And you know, sin always leads to a separation from God, a hiding, a running from God as opposed to running to God. The Word says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? Answer that. None. You're right. They're opposites. They have no fellowship together. And that's what we see here. There was separation. Rather than going to God, when, what they had always done, they now hid as if they could really hide from God. There's humor in here, isn't there? You know, it's kind of like, uh, he can't see us over here. Yeah, I can't. I know right where you're at. You know, we do the same thing. You know, the only, the only hiding that takes place is in our conscious. We consciously try to, we, we make it so we're unaware of him, but he's aware. And man, it's, it's embarrassing, isn't it, when we realize that. They should have run to God and confessed. They should have come clean. They should have repented. But now they knew sin. Sin had entered in their lives and pride and shame kept them from coming to the one who alone could help them. Isn't that true? When you sin, when I sin, there usually is shame involved and then sadly our pride gets involved and those two things have this incredible way of keeping us from doing then what we should be doing. First of all, going back to God and second of all, getting ourselves around godly people again. But that's what we do. And the miracle is, watch this. The miracle is God didn't run from them. He came back to the garden to find them. It reminds you of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke, one of my favorite passages. He approached them, and it's a clear picture of the love of God for lost mankind. In Luke, you know what the passage says? It says, when the son was far off, the father did what? Say it. He ran. That is the most awesome passage. I love that. That's what I feel God has done to me in my life. I hope you do too. You know, I, was, I had just made a mess of my life. And the minute I said, the minute I turned back thinking, I'll go to God, it's as if that's all he needed and he just came running down the road to help me and say, come on. And you guys, do you see this here? Do you understand this? This is so beautiful that God came to them. God knew what they did. God knew the consequences more than we will ever know. But God came back to them. That third, they were afraid. Verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And so Adam knew that he had done something wrong when he ate of the forbidden fruit. Obviously, God said, Don't. And, and, and notice, too, it wasn't just that he obeyed verbally, but things changed. He knew that sin had entered in. And notice something had changed in their relationship from before. And that's what sin did. It brought fear. It brought hiding. It brought shame. You know, I think of when my kids were younger and I'd come home from work 
One of the greatest joys of a dad is when he comes home and those kids come running to the door, man. They're just glad to see dad. And that's what it was like before, but that changed now. You know, you get the impression anytime God showed up in the garden, man, Adam and Eve would run to him, have fellowship with him. But this time you don't get that impression at all. And when it says, verse 9, watch this. When God says, where are you? Again, it isn't because God didn't know where they were. Watch this. He was giving them a chance to repent. And so it seems like it's a question of location. It is in a way, but not physical location. He's asking them a question of where is your spiritual location? Where is your location of your relationship with me now? What's happened to that? Because he knew something had changed there. And he wanted them to come clean with them. When they needed to confess what they had done. And Adam's fall cost men dearly. We know it firsthand, don't we? But have you ever thought about what it cost God? See, with the fall, we see the price to men. We understand that. We are sinners. We understand that. But it costs God as well. That fellowship that God once had with Adam and Eve was now broken. And it cost them that relationship. And no doubt it costs God great hurt. Now watch this. I want you to see something here. I want you to, if this is the first time you're going to hear this type of stuff, I want you to go away and I want you to think about this because I think there's some real insight right here. A key for you and I to prevent sin and to overcome sin and a key of how we're to deal with sin is right here. Okay? We need to understand this. We need to see it. We need to meditate on it. We need to chew upon it till we get it. We need, when we see how sin hurts God and how it hurts others, if we have sinned, then that could be a key towards repentance. See, if there's no repentance, then I assure you the person that needs to repent does not understand that they have hurt God and they have hurt other people. So let's take it on the side where we have entered into sin and we have failed. We have failed God. We have failed others. We need to understand what the response should come is a true response of repentance is I see that I've hurt others. I see that I've hurt God. And what do I do? I seek to make it right. Anybody tells you they have repented and they do not care about how they have hurt God or hurt other people. I assure you they have not repented. They don't understand what repentance is. But watch this, you guys. When we understand that sin hurts others, it hurts God, it can also be the opposite. It can be a great tool in preventing us from sinning to begin with. And this is where I think we all need to keep growing in our relationship. When we come to Christ, we're kind of childish in our relationship. We're like kids. You know, kids make mistakes. And parents are very quick and easy just to forgive them. But as we get older, we need to realize that we are to become mature in our responsibilities and we need to be careful what we do and not do things and act like no big deal. It's not childhood anymore. And so we need to understand that if I do this, this is what could happen. This is the consequences of this sin. And as we understand that, it should then say, whoa, I don't want anything to do with that. And if, if you don't, you know, just watch at times when you, when you hear something or see somebody or help a friend that's gone through something, learn from it. It sounds funny, but in a sense, meditate upon their sin so that you will grow by it and realize the damage that it could do. I'm amazed the damage that sin does. Sometimes we act like, well, it just hurts me. That's not true. And we need to understand that. And I think it's a great lesson then for you and I that when we do sin, 
understand you've hurt others. You've hurt God. And restoration means repentance. It means making that right. You don't know how often I've been through situations where I've been wronged and and then later something will come to light and people never come back and say, Pastor, you are right. I'm sorry, man. See, that's hard. It's embarrassing, isn't it? To go back and say, I was wrong. You were right. But that's really what it means to repent. And we need to understand that. And then again, you get the point. Understand. Understand the pain. Understand the hurt that even to this day, our sin can cause others. And let it be a great, a great motivation to stay out of it. Well, verse 11, and he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? See, God knew exactly what happened. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So rather saying, yes, Lord, we have. We did it. We are guilty. They play the game that you can't buy at Toys R Us, but we inherit this game. It's called the blame game. (laughs) And that's the game Adam and Eve played. And they passed that game on to you and I too. Adam is saying, yes, I ate, but she made me do it. And Eve says, yeah, I ate, but the serpent deceived me. And anytime we blame, anytime we do that, we are shifting the responsibility from where it belongs. And it's indicated that we have sinned, you guys. It really is. When we are blaming other people, other things, other situations, there's a good indication that either we have sinned and we're in sin, or God is trying to get our attention. You're not trying to get you know, that other person's attention that you want people to believe. He is trying to get our attention to, for us to see something. You know, blaming is so ugly. So damaging to healing and getting the truth out. So saddening to God when he sees right through it. You know? Adam and Eve were refusing to accept responsibility for their sin. Again, John Davis says this, Sin always blurs a man's perspective and prevents him from candidly assessing his guilt. That's so true. And a side note, in a marriage, in a relationship, blaming is a killer. You want to add tension to your marriage, just blame your wife for something that is your fault or blame your husband and man, it kills the marriage. Well, there's further consequences then, aren't there? There's a curse upon the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, in other words, because you deceived Eve and you caused this whole thing for the fall, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise you on the heel and you shall bruise him uh, on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so cursed was the serpent then, Satan. Enmity is a word that you could translate hostile or even hatred and that's what he put between. The Lord said he'd put that between the serpent and the woman and her seed, her offspring and Satan. And it's interesting here, guys. You've got to see some at the end of verse 15. When he says he shall bruise the head and you shall bruise him on the heel, it's prophetic. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this tragic scene, God takes it to the future. Because the he there, when it says he shall bruise the head, the he there is Christ. This is exactly what Christ would do. The you there is Satan. And so it's a reference to that ultimate victory that Christ will have as we just finished the book of Revelation when he finally sentence, sentences the devil 
to the, to the lake of fire, to hell forever, that is the victory. The word bruise there in your footnotes should have the word crush. And that is what happened. It says that in the future, Christ will crush the head of Satan. But he says, and you, speaking of Satan, will bruise him on the heel. And the bruising of Christ's heel was Satan thought he had defeated like a serpent bites the heel of a, uh, a person because that's where he's at. He bruised Christ's heel, if you will, by the crucifixion. But Satan didn't realize that the crucifixion, Christ would rise again and pay the price for sin. And, and so in the midst of this, this is an incredible reference to Christ's victory over Satan. And, and so really at the sight of the greatest failure, man sinning and sin entering the world, watch this, God declares victory as he points to the future. It's incredible to see the, the richness of the word of God. Next, though, we see another consequence. The woman would be have pain in childbirth. To the woman, he said, verse 16, I'll greatly multiply um, your pain in childbirth. And all the ladies said, Amen. In pain you will bring forth children, and yet you des- your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And so because of the curse, woman's pain in childbirth would be multiplied. And ladies, I, I, it doesn't cut it. You ladies never cut us, guys, any slack when it comes to us trying to sympathize with your pain in childbirth. You know, you just act like it's the greatest pain in the world. And, and don't get me wrong, I shouldn't have just said that, because it is. <laughs> and when my wife went through labor twice, it was just like, you know, I never told her this, but it's like, glad it's her and not me, you know. <laughs> but, but it is, isn't it? You know, it, it is that. And this is where, why? But notice, in her desire was to be for her husband. And that's what we saw in 2, didn't we? Chapter 2. So in spite of the fall... The wife, the woman being a helpmate wouldn't change. And if he desire if, if if her desire would be for her husband, which by the way would help her to get through the pain of birth and bind them more together, there's nothing like the joy of a child being born and the support of a husband to all of a sudden make that pain go away, you know? I mean, give me a break. The joy of a child uh, passes the pain of childbirth a hundred times over and Years later, you just look at it and go, no big deal. I would do it again for another child like that. And, and so that's what we see here. And it seems to be saying, though, watch this. It seems that it says that the woman's desire would be for her husband. I think it's saying that, that if this isn't true, if this isn't there, then there's a good chance that sin is hiding it or blocking what God intended. And think about that for a minute. And I want it to go both ways. If God says the desire for the woman would be for her husband, and if that desire isn't there, then something's wrong. And I think it's the same with us guys. If we do not have a desire for our wives, you need to look at your life, and you need to say, man, is there something in my life that shouldn't be there? What's blocking it? You know? Well, I need to be careful what I say right now. But I just want us to understand that. That we need to realize that that's the desire God put there. It's an awesome desire. You know, Wink and I got married when we were teenagers, really. Um, I had just turned 20 and she was 19. And you hear me joke all the time about how mature we were. You know, statistics say a marriage like ours won't make it. A couple weeks, we'll go into 34 years to God's glory, you know. And I'll tell you guys, I desire her, and I'm not saying this to... If you've had a marriage that failed, I'm not trying to make you feel horrible or that. I'm just trying to show you that what God says in His Word can be true. 
You know, I know you, you kind of, have you been in the church long enough to know that when we start talking about marriage and wives that I kind of get excited? Because I kind of get excited about my wife. I kind of like her a lot. Okay? I like her more than I like you. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you see, and I think she likes me. Well, she might say, no, I like them more than I like you. No. My wife loves the joke. But understand, you guys, that's how it's supposed to be. And you say, well, Scott, it's not that way. Well, then maybe it's because you're not going before the Lord and allowing the Lord to honestly tell you what is blocking that. You know, guys, if I could just speak to you, sometimes we could be the most bullhead, self-centered individuals in the world. And God is trying to get through to us and say, would you quit being so macho? Would you quit being that way? Would you soften up a bit? Would you start thinking about your wife when you get home too? See? And so sometimes there, there's reasons that, that we don't have a desire that way. Well, enough. Now I'm meddling. I know I am. And, uh, but again, I just think it's a great passage, you know. And, 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 and notice again, we see that he was to rule over her. He was to be the head of the relationship and the family. And let me just say this, because we hit on this already in chapter 2. If we struggle with that, ladies, if you struggle with this whole idea of the husband being the head and to rule over, remember what we talked about there. If you weren't here, get the teaching about what real submission is, mutual submission, what it really means to be the head and all that. But understand that, always understand it's our culture. It isn't the word that will make you women feel that it's a horrible thing to have your husband over you. It is our culture that does that. Understand that. Second of all, pride that comes from sin and being fallen gets in the way there too. See, we get prideful at times when that happens. But understand this, that God has placed an order because of sin. Without a chain of authority, chaos reigns. And God wants order in the family and in society, if you look at Iraq and what is happening in Iraq right now, and I'm not talking about what side you are on politically or that, but what I'm talking about, you have what you have in Iraq today amongst the Iraqi people and the different fashions in that country because there is no leadership. Now, it's trying to get in place, and Lord willing, in time it will, and you will see things change. But that's what happens when there is not rule and leadership and a right order you have chaos the next time you get pulled over by a policeman for speeding and by the way you get pulled over because you were speeding okay you need to thank the lord that we have policemen we have government authorities that we have order in our land and it brings what it does what we enjoy see and so that's what god did here too he's not saying you know women are lesser more or anything else. You're just saying there's an order and that's what I want in marriage. And then notice man would have to work hard to get the ground to produce. Verse 17, then Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because you in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. And here's where thorns come in, weeds come in. And in other words, gardening is going to be hard now. Gardening is going to be more about weeds than about pretty flowers and vegetables, you know. And again, um, you know, notice things turned out a little different than Satan made it sound like in the beginning of the chapter, didn't it? Isn't that interesting? You know, he never mentioned that this is what it would mean to eat of that fruit. And, and giving in to sin is like that. The devil leaves a lot of the consequences out when he tempts us. All you can see is that, that we're, it's just like we're just focused on that thinking, oh, this won't be bad. But we don't realize, you know, the pleasure of the moment will turn into pain and bitterness. And that's why God says, and he seeks to keep us from it. Well, verse 20, 
the men called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. And again, this is a beautiful passage here. You need to see how rich the Word of God is. Up to now, she had always been referred to as woman in the Bible. I referred to as Eve, but this is the first time she's called Eve. And Adam gives her that name Eve. And if you look at your footnote or on the side of your Bible, you'll see that that word means living or life. And so her name, in her name there is hope. It spoke that there would be yet life. God will take this disaster that happened in just a short time and he'll bring life. And I think of what Jesus said in John 10, that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I come to have life, that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so, you know, it spoke to my heart to ask you the question this morning. Adam and Eve could have stayed where they were, couldn't they? They could have stayed in their pain and their mistake and not moved on from it. And, and again, I think it speaks to you and I. I want to ask you the question, have you gotten beyond past failures in your life? This is very important. And I say this because I know at times people never get beyond them. And number two, sometimes it takes people a long time to get beyond them. You guys, the reality is life is full of pain. Life is full of hurt. Every time I get hurt, I used to think, well, that might be it. That was, that was one of the worst hurts I've ever been through. So pretty sure I got this down, God. There'll be no more hurts the rest of my life. And God is gracious. He lets it go a six months or a year, sometimes even a couple. And then all of a sudden, something happens again and I get hurt. And I have to go through some painful situation in my life. And that's life. That is what this life is because this world is, is fallen. But the key is, are we moving beyond those things that have happened to us? See, everyone in this room has had hurts in our life. We've had things go wrong in our lives. We are still struggling with issues in our life. But I think we, we, we make a mistake and we almost, I think, enter into sin when we realize that our life is to be a life of faith and expectation because of that faith. And we are not partaking of that. Christ died, it says, the hope of glory, to give us a life and to give it abundantly. And so if we are in the midst of something and we can't get out of it, could it be that we're not realizing that we are not walking in faith? See, we could walk in the place of failure and pity, or we can walk in the place of faith and expectation. And that is where we're supposed to be. Is it hard at times to get out of those places? You bet it's hard to get out of those places. But your desire should be for that. God help me. You know, years ago, let me show this quickly. Years ago, I went through when we first got, when we, right before Wink and I got married, my back went out. And I had back surgery and I removed some ruptured disc. Well, the mistake was there was more than one. I had about two and a half ruptured discs. We got married. My back went out again. They went back in and found more and operated again. At that point, we were on workman's comp at $65 or so every two weeks and living in welfare housing in Montana. Now you say, oh, poor Scott. No, it was pretty good. Okay, God was providing. We were thankful. Okay, But here's what happened. And listen, this, is, this really happened to me. I all of a sudden started having back pain again. And I was taking all the pain pills and the doctors, because they had made the mistake the first time, started doing a ton of tests again, thinking, oh my goodness, have we missed something again? And finally, not only did my neurosurgeon send me to another neurosurgeon, they both concluded, there's nothing wrong with you. Well, God knew that. So God says on a Sunday, I'm going to send you to a revival meeting, Scott. You're going to listen to this old boy from Tennessee talk about self-pity. And as I sat in that message and that guy talked about self-pity, God says, you got it? <laughs> I said, got it. <laughs> and I realized I had been feeling sorry for myself. 
I was in my early 20s, you know, went through major back surgery, wondered what it meant for the rest of my life and just having a good old pity party and I liked the attention it brought. And even that psychosomatic thing, that was really happening. I was literally still feeling pain down my leg and everything from the damaged nerves. But that afternoon, God said to me, there's nothing wrong with you now. You're healed. You are just feeling sorry for yourself. And I saw that so clearly. And I made decisions. Actually, at that time, I was living in Montana. Within a week or so, we made decisions to move to Spokane. And we made decisions to take a new job and everything else. And somewhere in that process, rather quickly, the pain just disappeared. And God had shown me what it was. And so what I want to show you guys and encourage you by is be careful of that. Don't live in that place. See, you say, well, it, it happens. We all go through it. But our God is a God who, you know, maybe this is a stupid illustration. My son's going to say, Dad, why do you do that? You know, we come into this world as two-wheel drive vehicles. And God wants to make us four-wheel drive vehicles so we can get out of the mud, okay? I told you it was stupid. I shouldn't have said it. Okay, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Again, you guys. We could just spend a morning right here. It's such a beautiful picture. In Adam and Eve covering themselves, verse 7, with fig leaves, you know, that is their doing. Now God covers them with the skin of animals to hide their nakedness, to hide their sin. And it's a beautiful picture. The fig leaves is man's doing, man's effort, man's work. The garments from animals is God's doing. It's God's provision. And of course, the sacrificing of animals and these innocent animals, notice they were innocent, pointed to the sacrifices that Israel would make. But more than that, it pointed to the sacrifice that God's son would ultimately make upon the cross. What a beautiful picture here. God says, I'll cover your shame. I will provide the sacrifice. And isn't that exactly what God has done for you and I? God, we've fallen. We've eaten of the fruit. God says, I know. I know. But I have one that will cover you. If you will take of his life, I will cover your shame. I will move you beyond your shame and and make your life an incredible life. And so it says, uh, the Lord God said there, verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now that he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So, of course, God makes it so they're out of the garden. They can't get back. And again, you may wonder, well, why would he have done that there? But you understand, if at that point they would have eaten of that fruit and lived forever, you know what condition they would have lived in? Their sinful, fallen condition there. And again, it's so rich, you guys. It's a picture that God says we can go beyond that sinful, fallen condition. God could move us in Christ beyond that. So what a beautiful picture. And so if the worship team will come back up, we want to take a communion now and just share in the Lord's table. And what a beautiful time to share in the Lord's table when we see that passage that it says that he shall crush Satan on the head. This morning what we want to do is we want to take of the seed. We want to take of Christ, if you will, and, and all that he has done for you and I.